Good morning. One of my best friend's family takes in foster children. Since they're a very loving family, they usually end up with the kids that come from the roughest situations. They've had babies overcoming drug addictions. They've had children who are so violent and so act out so much that they need 24-7 supervision. And they've loved all of these children, but there was one that stood out. For safety reasons, I'll call her Tiana, which isn't her real name. Um, but they took her in when she was really little. They had her for a couple years. They almost adopted her once, but her mother petitioned to regain custody. And before the papers went through, the state granted that she returned to her mother. My friend's family was devastated. Tiana's mother had addiction issues. She had bad taste in men. And she was a very selfish person. But the state had made their decision, and Tiana left the foster system. When I met, when I met my friend, it was a couple years after this had happened. I'd never met Tiana, but they had pictures of her all over their house. They talked about her all the time. And praying that Tiana would be able to come home was a regular part of their life. They asked for prayer in church almost every week. That God would keep her safe. That she would be given back to them. And although many people in the church had met Tiana, at one point or another, and lived through the situation with this family, Tiana's situation made them uncomfortable. By the time I moved away, it had been six years since they'd seen her. And quite frankly, even the biggest prayer warriors they had had lost hope. They believed that this family was hurting themselves by holding on. They wanted them to move on and stop hoping that something would ever happen. Many people even wondered how they could be so intent on bringing Tiana into their family when they had so many other children that were going in and out of their house that were looking to be adopted. Some considered my friend's family to be selfish. Some considered them to be irrational. Some considered them foolish to think that God was going to bring her back. And yet, they continue praying. Today's passage is very familiar to us. Every Sunday, as a part of our tradition at Bethel, we recite the Lord's Prayer. While the version we find here in Luke is a little bit different than the one that we usually say from Matthew, many of the important elements are still the same. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. As something that is part of our weekly gathering, we're in a very real danger of taking this prayer for granted. Some might pray these words just because they're on the screen. Some might pray these words because they're a part of our tradition, part of who we are. Some people might pray because it's the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. I've heard many messages preached on the Lord's Prayer usually from Matthew, they talk about how well-rounded the prayer is, how it talks about every major part of our lives, how it repositions us to be a part of God's will. I often hear people talk about this prayer 
as one of submission to God. And I often hear that this perspective is reflected when we pray. When we pray for someone who is sick or in serious danger, how often do we pray something that sounds like, God, please heal this person if it is your will? We say these prayers like it's a question, like we're asking God to tell us if he will heal them. There are many reasons that we might do something like this. Sometimes we don't want to insinuate that we know what God's will is. Sometimes we don't want to get our hopes up that this person will be healed and have it never happen. Sometimes when we're praying in public, we don't want to get other people's hopes up, especially if we're praying for them and their loved ones. Because each of us has seen someone walk away from church because someone said, God will do this, and then it never happened. And sometimes we're just tired. Because praying for something that we truly hope for or we truly need is painful. And it takes every emotion we have just to keep holding on to that hope. And if I'm honest, I know I've prayed in every single one of these ways at one point or another. And these are all really safe ways to pray the Lord's Prayer. If things don't turn out the way we'd like them to, we can move on. And hopefully we don't take too much of it personally. But these safe prayers will only bring safe answers. And that's what we're going to come to expect. If Here in Luke, we're offered a challenge to pray the Lord's Prayer dangerously. Unlike Matthew's Gospel, his teaching doesn't end with the prayer itself. Jesus tells them exactly why they should pray this way. Luke reads, And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, send me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Don't bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now this description of prayer is very different than any that I've given so far. Here in the story, Jesus is obviously comparing the person who is praying to a pesky neighbor that has no boundaries. The, the man seems to be unaware or uncaring about the timing of his request. He needs food for his guest, and he is unwilling to rest until this traveler receives what he or she needs. The second man, obviously a metaphor for God, tells the man that he's already in bed and wouldn't possibly get up to give him food for his guest. He is indignant. This man would bother him while he is sleeping. The man isn't even making a request for himself. He's making it for someone else. Now, every metaphor breaks down at some point if you read too far into it. If we read too far into this narrative about the character of these two neighbors, we'll obviously find unsavory comparisons to ourselves or to God. But that's not Jesus' point. 
He characterizes prayer as something that's ongoing, something that is persistent, something that, if done properly, may ask much more than we would ever deem considerate. His entire point is found at the end in verse 8. The second man will do what is asked of him for two reasons. One, that the first man had the nerve to ask such an unreasonable thing. And the second, that he was persistent enough to wait until the second man finally got out of bed and agreed to do it. At no point in this explanation of prayer does Jesus encourage his disciples to pray safely. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He charges them to go before God with requests that are daring. He also encourages them to keep asking until it actually happens. Now, knowing that this is how Jesus understands the purpose of prayer, that he has just taught them, I think we are required to consider that it's possible that we've been praying this in the wrong way. We should not simply be waiting to see what God's will is. We should also reject the idea that the things that are happening around us is God's kingdom come. If people dying from lack of food and clean water, people living in homes that are abusive, people suffering from things like cancer or Alzheimer's or mental illness, and people dying due to hatred and violence are God's will, not only should we not be praying this prayer at all, we probably shouldn't have anything to do with God. And while some of you just took that offensively, I'll tell you why. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say that suffering, pain, hatred, or dying is God's will. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that he heals the brokenhearted. It says that he seeks justice for the poor and the powerless. It says that he weeps with those who mourn. And when Jesus teaches about his kingdom, there is nothing in an earthly equivalent to what is happening today that we could use to pray, your kingdom come. If we were to take Jesus seriously, our prayer should be something more along the lines of God. You've promised us that your kingdom looks like nothing of this world, that there would be no more weeping or mourning or pain or death. And God, we would like to see this become a reality. Jesus' explanation charged us with having the boldness to challenge the fact that our current life is anything like God's coming kingdom. And knowing that requires that we change the way that we not only say this prayer, but every prayer that we say. Jesus' teaching requires that our prayers make us active participants. That we not be satisfied with what is happening to us or to other people. And Jesus is telling us that our prayers should be reminding God that we know that. That we be expectantly waiting for the day when this change is turned into a reality. And if we take verse 8 seriously, then it is the boldness and persistence of our prayer that is important. We should be bravely praying for healing, for justice, for love, for a change in this world that only God who created it and me. This is the purpose of prayer, that we be praying that God's kingdom would be made a reality, that God would provide for our every need, that God would offer us an irrational amount of grace, that we might offer it to others as well.
for Christ has saved us through his death. And his resurrection has invited us to participate in the kingdom that is currently here on earth. And his return in the future will make everything that he has promised a reality. And our prayers should be reflecting this belief. But praying that way isn't going to be easy. When God has placed something on your heart that is painful, it's hard to surrender to that fear. To pray that God's kingdom come is exhausting. It's something that is sometimes irrational. Sometimes it will cause others to ridicule you for believing that God would do something they deem impossible. And as I shared earlier, this is what happened with my friend and her sister, Tiana. About a year ago, eight years after my friends lost Tiana, her mother slipped up and Tiana was returned to the foster system. The caseworker gave my friends a call. Up to this point, there had been no indication that Tiana's mother would ever lose custody of her again, despite the many unsavory things that were going on in that house. And when most people had given up hope, Tiana came home. And this time, the adoption went through. Now, I don't tell you this story because I believe that every story ends like this. People still suffer. They still die. And they are still hurt by the people around them. But watching this family pray for something in this way for the six years that I've known them has challenged the broken and pessimistic way that I have always approached prayer. When no one believed them, they had the courage to say, we know that this is God's will. That they knew that God did not want Tiana to be in this situation any longer. There will always be pain associated with this situation. And as Tiana becomes a teenager, she will have to work through questions about identity and the pain that her mother caused in her life. But what I would like to say is that I've seen this kind of dangerous, self-sacrificing, God-challenging kind of prayer work. And it has convinced me that our normal way of praying, Father, your kingdom come, can no longer be enough. Instead, we should have an imagination that reflects the kingdom reality that is possible through the power of God. And we should be praying that this kingdom would come, not partially, not someday, but now. And we should be praying with urgency and persistence. Here at Bethel, we are afforded many opportunities to do just that. We say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. We sing songs that expect that the King of Heaven would come down, that he would build his kingdom here. And if we take seriously these songs and these prayers, then all of this will continue into our week. Because we are the church, and he is the hope on earth.